Well, as we turn to the word, I want you to just take a minute and think about some of the gifts people have given you. Some of your maybe favorite, whether it was a birthday present or a random drop by, here's a thing gift. Some of the, the, the favorite gifts you've ever received. If you got maybe one or two or a dozen in mind, feel, if you're watching online, feel free to drop some of those examples in the comments. Now, I suspect that the most meaningful gifts that you have received were the ones that, that came from someone and they were, they were personal, they were kind of right there for you, and, and you could tell that the person had, had sacrificed something for this gift. The ones that meant the most were, were the ones that someone had, had put some thought into, had maybe uh, listened for a while and picked up a few hints, whether they were subtle hints or not so subtle hints, that, boy, it sure would be nice to have this. Or maybe they'd, they'd watched you long enough and had just been close enough in a relationship to know that, you know what, I know that, that Sean would just love this thing. As I thought about this my, myself this week, I thought of a, a couple of things. I've got a really nice poker stick for the fire pit in the back that I got for my birthday this year. I pictured a, uh, there's a, a, like a printed picture. I don't know if you remember, like before cameras, we had to, you know, wind the film and snap it and take it away and came back. And I've got this picture holding the Calvin and Hobbes, like the ultimate essential, all of it in a box. And I'm just ecstatic. My wife heard my pleas and bought me this great gift. All of this means that the gift itself is more than just the materials. The poker stick is more than just a piece of metal with a nice handle on the end, and Calvin and Hobbes is more than just uh, cartoons written on pages, but it's, it, it's more than what it's from. It's, it's more than that. A gift is a tangible demonstration of a person's love and care and kindness for you. This morning, in this text, we are going to see a gift of great significance. So if you have a Bible uh, nearby, and I hope that you do, you can open it up or click and swipe and scroll to John chapter 12. We're back in John's gospel this week after taking uh, a bit of a pause for the last five weeks as we had started to gather in person again. And we felt like it was really important to take those first handful of services together and, and, and focus, uh, not that we want to omit John's gospel, but we wanted to have some really specific time of thinking, how can we put these past 15 months behind us? And so we looked at five biblical keys to put COVID behind us and all that COVID has done to us behind us. If you missed any of those, you can find them on our website or on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or Spotify as well. Let me read this morning's text for us, and then I'll pray as we dive in. John chapter 12, and I'll read verses 1 through 11. Six days before the Passover, Jesus therefore came to Bethany, where Lazarus was, whom Jesus had raised from the dead. And so they gave a dinner for him, for Jesus there. And Martha served, and Lazarus was one of those reclining with him at the table. Mary, therefore, took a pound of expensive ointment made from pure nard and anointed the feet of Jesus and wiped his feet with her hair. And the house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume. But Judas Iscariot, one of the disciples, he who, who was about to betray Jesus, said, Why was this ointment not sold for 300 denarii and given to the poor? Now Judas said this not because he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief. And having charge of the money bag, he used, he used to help himself to whatever was put in there. 
Jesus responded and said, leave her alone so that she may keep it for the day of my burial. For the poor you will always have with you, but you do not always have me. When the large crowd of the Jews heard and learned that Jesus was there, they came not only on account of him, on account of Jesus, but also to see Lazarus, whom Jesus had raised from the dead. And so the chief priests made plans to put Lazarus to death as well, because on account of him, many of the Jews were going away and believing in Jesus. Let me pray. God, thank you for this text. Thank you that we can gather and look at it together. And I thank you for this example of an extravagant gift. Uh, may it ultimately remind every one of us of your extravagant gift of Jesus given to each and every one of us. Again, I pray that you would speak to us this morning, and that you would lead and guide our time together. In Jesus' name, amen. Now, some of us might be familiar with these verses, with this section, but as we read them, again, we need to remember what just happened in the previous chapter. Now, again, for us here at Trinity, we had taken a break through this series, so it's been about six weeks since we looked at John chapter 11, but here's kind of the long and short of what has happened just before we get into John chapter 12. At the beginning of chapter 11, we're told of a man who's sick, and not just a little bit sick, but really sick like on the verge of death sick. And he and his sisters were close friends with Jesus, likely uh, supporters of his ministry. Uh, close friends were told that, that Jesus loved Lazarus like a brother. They probably visited Jesus often, and when Jesus was in the area, he probably stayed with them regularly. Of course, we're talking about Lazarus and Mary and Martha. When the sisters saw that their brother was sick and declining fast, they sent word to Jesus and said, the one that you love is sick. Likely thinking that Jesus would come and heal him. They'd seen him do this before. But Jesus waited, and by the time he arrived in Bethany, Lazarus had already died and was, had been in the grave for four days. The town was filled with mourners, uh, friends, family, relatives who were mourning the loss of this man and with with his sisters, and, and the professional mourners would have come out of Jerusalem to, to, to make this a, a mourning scene, and, and the sisters come, and they see Jesus, and they don't really seem to understand why Jesus seemed late. But then we watch as, as Jesus has these beautiful interactions with Martha and Mary, and then they go to the tomb, and he says, listen, move that stone away. Martha uh, meets this request with resistance and says, listen, it's, it's going to stink. He's been in there for four days. Keep that little tidbit in your mind. As she says, you know, if we roll the stone away, the stench is going to fill everything around here. But they roll the stone, and then Jesus prays, and he says, Lazarus, come up. And he did. Now, we might expect that right after this, right after they, they get the grave cloths off of him, there'd be a party in Bethany. But instead, we're told that many of the Jews, which when that language is used in John, it almost always means the religious leaders. We're told that many of these religious leaders gathered and decided, this is no good, Jesus needs to die. And so in all the commotion, Jesus left Bethany and went to a town named Ephraim until things calmed down a little bit. Now we get back to our text in chapter 12. Jesus has come back to Bethany. 
pr probably the crowds have dispersed, generally gone back to the city. But when the townsfolk saw him, they held a dinner. They threw that, that feast that we would have expected maybe at the end of chapter 11. And they held this meal to honor Jesus. No question, everyone in Bethany had been talking about Jesus and Lazarus for the last number of days or a couple of weeks, however long it had been. It hadn't been that long. And look who we're told gets to sit at the table with Jesus. Lazarus, the one Jesus raised from the dead. Now imagine being Lazarus, reclining at the table with Jesus. Now this, we've, we've lost maybe a little bit of this in our culture, but in that Middle Eastern, especially first century culture, to, to share a table with someone was, was this super intimate thing where, where it was an expression of, of friendship and unity, and, and this was a big deal to share a table with someone. And so here's Lazarus, reclining at the table with Jesus, Think about the couple of weeks he's just had, Lazarus. He was maybe doing all right, then he got sick, then he got really sick, and then he died. Spent four days in a grave. What on earth did he find out about the afterlife in those four days? Only to be woken up by a word, find himself wrapped in a cave in cloths and have to kind of hobble out to come to Jesus who said, come out. He's, I'm a little tied up here, Jesus. How do I get out? I wonder what kind of questions Lazarus had for Jesus. Jesus, what took so long? We asked for you. I wonder what kind of questions all the people who knew Lazarus had for him. I wonder how the conversations between Jesus and Lazarus and Mary and Martha went this time. But here's the thing. As big a deal as Lazarus reclining at the table with Jesus is, it's not even the main point of this passage. It's a huge deal, and it's a picture of everyone who is a Christian. In chapter 11, he was dead. Now he's alive, raised to life, and dining with Jesus. That's, that's our destiny as followers of Jesus, too. Jesus showed us, and he is going to show us again in the Gospel of John through his own death, that, that the grave has no hold on us. It's not the end of the story. Yes, we all anticipate that day when our, our physical bodies will give up and, and we will die a physical death, but we will end up feasting with Jesus. The main focus on this passage isn't actually Lazarus. It's on this extravagant gift that Mary gives to Jesus. Look at verse 3 again with me. Then Mary took a pound of perfume, pure, expensive nard, and she anointed Jesus' feet and wiped his feet with her hair so that the whole house was filled with not the stench of death, What's the significance of Mary's gift? There's at least four things we're going to look at this morning. First, Mary's gift is a reminder for us of Jesus' impending death. Now, John, the author of the gospel here, gives us all sorts of clues in and around this passage that Jesus is headed towards death. As we mentioned right in the verses right before our passage, we read that the, the, the leaders are, are making a plan to have Jesus killed. Right after the scene, in the end of the scene, we discover in verse uh, 
10 as well, that, that they issued a similar warrant for Lazarus. We've got to get rid of Jesus. We've got to get rid of Lazarus. They're upsetting our normal here. John reminds us in verse 1 that, hey, we're just six days before Passover, which would clue every reader's mind, okay, what was Passover for? Passover was when every Jewish man brought a lamb into Jerusalem to be offered in his place for their sin. And as we've read, as John has shown us so many times, starting with John the baptizer declaring it early in the gospel that Jesus is the Lamb of God. He is the true and better, the once for all final Passover Lamb whose death will take away our sins. Look at, again, the description of Lazarus in verse 2. Lazarus, whom Jesus had raised from the dead. One of the, the main points of John writing about Lazarus' death and resurrection was to demonstrate, again, Jesus' power and victory over death itself. And that power and victory will only be amplified in a couple of chapters when we see Jesus resurrected. We've got all these hints that Jesus' death is coming and coming soon. But then there's the gift itself. This kind of perfume or ointment, depending on your translation, was, was most often used as, as part of the Jewish burial practices. When a person died, their, their bodies would be prepared for, bur for burial with a combination of spices and perfumes to help limit the stench. Now, whether or not Mary understood that Jesus was headed towards the cross this fast, we don't know for sure. But her gift was preparing Jesus' body for that impending death. It said, uh, I might mention this again later too, but it, it was said that the, the kind of perfume and the amount of perfume she used wasn't just something that would have brushed off in a couple of days. The uh, similar accounts in Matthew and Mark of this anointing say that she anointed his head first and his body. And so he would have had, you know, a pound would go a long way. A pound of perfume, a pound of ointment would go a long way. So she, he may have been covered, his clothes, his body, his skin covered and that smell would have lasted a long time. Potentially, he even carried that scent to the cross with him six days later. And he would have, every time had that smell, would have been reminded of this, this extravagant gift of love. He was being prepared for his death. In verse 4 as well, we're introduced to Judas, who John calls the one who was about to betray Jesus. Again, this description points us towards a night less than a week away where Judas would lead a group of soldiers and religious leaders to the Garden of Gethsemane. And there he'd give Jesus a kiss of betrayal and start a chain of events that ends less than 24 hours later with Jesus' lifeless body being pulled off the cross. The last hint John gives us of Jesus' impending death is in verse 8, in Jesus' own words where he says, you will not always have me. Jesus reminds them and reminds us that he came into the world for a very specific mission, that he came to lay down his life as the perfect sacrifice for the sins of mankind. And so, in a way, this gift from Mary, it, it points us to uh, his impending death, Jesus' impending death, but it also kind of serves in a similar function to the gifts we give one another at Christmas. Christmas isn't a time where we can celebrate our own generosity and say, look at all the things I bought for people and gave for them, but rather we give one another gifts to remind one another of the great gift of Jesus. Our Savior, our Lord. So Mary's gift is a reminder of Jesus' impending death 
Second, Mary's gift is a picture of extravagant love. Mary's gift, we, we read in the text, amounted to about a pound. It may have been, you know, a, you know, a pint or about a liter or so of ointment or perfume. John describes the gift as expensive, costing about 300 denarii, which is about 300 days labor for an average worker, so a year's salary for an average laborer at the time. That's a lot. That's tens of thousands of dollars today. Now, we don't know how Mary got this perfume. Maybe they were a wealthy family and they had it. But maybe it was something of a family heirloom that had been passed down and increased in value as this aged and had gone down from generation to generation to generation. But John tells us, too, that it was, it was pure nard. It was pure perfume. This wasn't something that was watered down. This wasn't a cheap knockoff. This wasn't a a made-somewhere-else version of a Gibson or whatever, as we talked about this morning, right? This wasn't a, 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 a poor replica of a great perfume. This was the real thing. Remember, whatever relationship that Mary had with Jesus before, and Martha and Lazarus, whatever they had, we were told, right, they sent word to Jesus saying, the one you love has, is, is sick, they had a strong relationship. They, they knew something about who Jesus was. They understood some bit, at least, of why Jesus was here. But when Mary saw Jesus call her brother out of the grave, everything changed. Now she realizes that, that following Jesus, that giving her allegiance to Jesus as Lord and Savior and King and leader, as she's piecing this all together, it's worth everything realizes that it's worth giving Jesus everything. She doesn't pull out the cheap gift. She doesn't just offer a few drops of this really expensive perfume, but she takes the best, the most extravagant, the most expensive perfume, and she pours all of it out. This is her climbing up on a soapbox in the town square or climbing up to the top of the mountain and shouting, Jesus is worth it. And her example is a challenge to every one of us as well. When we look at Jesus, what is our response? What's, what's the right response even? If we see Jesus for who he really is, who John repeatedly describes him as for us, that Jesus is the almighty, the infinite God of the universe who came to earth, who, who took on flesh and moved into the neighborhood so that he could die a brutal death in our place. If we understand his beauty, that he is, and, and he alone is the all-satisfying, wondrous, joyful God who promises to give peace and blessing and, and satisfaction and life in himself, not just to a few, but to all who come to him. If we get this, how can we possibly withhold anything from him? And I'm, I'm working on that. I, I still hang on to some. Yeah, Jesus, I'm yours, but I really like this. this. When's, when's the last time you demonstrated extravagant love for Jesus? 
And what does is, what is extravagant love look like now? He's not here, so we can't break a, a pound of nard worth however many thousands of dollars and anoint him with it. So what does it look like? I, I, I'm not sure it's a simple question. That it, there isn't a simple answer to it. But one question I wrestled with this week myself is, is am I following Mary's example? Am I giving Jesus my absolute best? Or am I holding something back? Am I, am I giving my best to following whatever news feeds? Am I giving my best to uh, training for some event? Am I giving my best to the Olympics, to, to watching and following, whatever it is? Am I giving something else, the, the best of my time, the best of my energy, the best, and then whatever's kind of left over is like, oh man, I should be reading my Bible today. I better read a couple verses and kind of, right? Am I giving Jesus my best or am I hold anything back? Am I giving something less than your nard. Mary also stepped in and demonstrated her love for Jesus by breaking many of the social conventions of the day, coming up to the table. She did something out of the ordinary, and she gave everything. Mary's gift is a picture for us of extravagant. Third, her gift as well is an illustration of humble service. In verse 3, we read that, that Mary pours a perfume on Jesus' feet. And twice John mentions that for us. And then John tells us that she wiped his feet with her hair. Again, in similar accounts, in Matthew and Mark, we're told that uh, she poured it on his head as well, and she would have anointed his whole body, and that's fine, and we don't have a problem. If she did the whole body, she also did his feet, right? It's, it's okay. But this was a great act of humility for her. In, in those days, a woman would not even have let her hair down around guests, let alone come up to Jesus and wipe his feet with her hair. But she doesn't care. Why? Because Jesus is worth it. Now, even though Mary was demonstrating extravagant love for Jesus, even though they were close, that they were friends, right, that they, had, they were like brothers and sisters maybe because they spent as much time as they did together, she never lost sight of who he was. She never lost sight of the glory of Jesus. She uh, remembered that he was Lord and she was not. So this act of love, by, by turning especially to his feet that John highlights for us, was carried out with great reverence for who Jesus is. Contrast Mary's response to Jesus here with the religious leaders at the end of chapter 11 who think in their arrogance that they have the right to kill Jesus. They're upsetting things, you need to get rid of them. John's emphasis on the washing of Jesus' feet as well points us forward to the next chapter, chapter 13, where Jesus humbles himself and, and washes the disciples' feet. It's all tied together here. And then he tells his followers, listen, I've done this for you, now you go and do this for everyone as well. So Mary here is showing us this beautiful and rare combination of generosity and humility. She offers this amazing gift, but she doesn't do it to draw attention to herself. She doesn't step in to steal the spotlight, though I'm, I'm sure a few heads snapped over and turned, what on earth is doing this? But she does this because she knows what she needs to do to show her love for Jesus. She's worshiping him with everything she has. So my hope for, for myself and, and my family and for all of us 
that we would learn from Mary's example, that we would all give extravagantly all that we have, all the while directing the glory and honor and praise to Jesus. Mary's gift is an illustration of humble service. Finally, Mary's gift is also a rebuke to self-centered religion. We can't talk about this passage without noting the contrast between Mary and Judas's response to what she's done. Look again at verses 4 through 6. But Judas Iscariot, the disciple who would soon betray Jesus, said, That perfume was worth a year's wages. It should have been sold and the money given to the poor. John's kind of editorial comment is that it's not that he cared for the poor, but he was a thief. Since he was in charge of the disciples' money, he often stole some for himself. These words in verse 5 are the only recorded words we have of Judas in John's gospel. And they may have been said in in kind of anger and disgust of what's going on, but maybe not. Maybe he just uh, saw it as a waste and said something. Either way, he sure comes across more as a a hard-headed businessman crunching numbers than one who's dedicated to the, the job of Jesus, the cause of Jesus, and the worship of Jesus. He doesn't look very good in this light, does he? One of uh, John, the gospel writer's key literary features, his key writing styles is how he portrays contrast. And again, we've got one between Mary and Judas here. We've seen it so many times, and John loves to use especially light and darkness in his gospel too. Look at John 3, 20 and 21, if you want to flip back a couple pages. He writes for us, Everyone who does evil hates the light and avoids it, so that his deeds may not be exposed. Maybe they say something like, That perfume was worth a year's wages. It could have been sold and the money given to the poor. Verse 21. But anyone who lives by the truth comes to the light so that their works may be shown to be accomplished by God. When we look at these two characters here at the banquet, Mary and Judas, we see this contrast perfectly illustrated. Judas is doing wicked things. He's a thief. The last time we heard thief was back in John 10, right? The, the, the enemy is a liar, a thief. He comes to steal and kill and destroy. And he's shown Judas is to hate the light. But Mary has come to the light. She's, she's picked these things up. She watched her brother raised from the dead. And her works show us the grace and power of God. And her love rings true. Her love shows us an authentic love. Jesus, uh, Judas, excuse me, Judas is a hypocrite. His, his cold, faithless heart is, is masked by a cloak of self-righteousness. Oh, we could have done this. His greed is masked as altruism. We could give the money away to the poor. Now, Judas serves as a warning for every one of us, too. I think it's really easy for us to look at this event and the events that come in the next couple chapters and say, well, I'd never betray Jesus. But I think we do. We do it more often than we'd like to admit. Just, Just subtle ways, even. Even if we make it look like we're good. See, Judas looked like a disciple. He talked like a disciple. He traveled with the inner circle. He, he knew how to walk the walk and talk the talk. 
And he could have supported this suggestion to sell, and sell the perfume and give the money to the poor with hundreds of verses from the Old Testament. He probably would have known them all. And he could now support it with hundreds of verses from our New Testament as well. But his motives were self-centered, and John tells us that. He was more concerned about what he could get from Jesus instead of what he was giving to Jesus. He looked really good on the outside. But on the inside, he was more concerned with money and with stuff than with devotion to Jesus. And when he was faced with the decision, with the opportunity to give up his money and his stuff or stay with Jesus, stuff won. Money won. He betrayed Jesus. Mary, on the other hand, has viewed her possessions as an opportunity to bless Jesus. So our question is, how do we view our stuff? How do we view our possessions? In verse 3, John reminds us that when Mary broke this jar open and anointed Jesus' feet, and, and again in Matthew and Mark, anointed Jesus' body, the house was filled with the fragrance. The perfume started in one spot and it went everywhere and it filled the house, no doubt, it burst through the windows and the doors and went out into the town. See, love has an undeniable fragrance. When you smell that, you want it to stick around. You just can't get enough of it. You want to be a part of it. You want to, to, to share it, to have it. And so Mary's gift, hopefully, helps us catch just a whiff of her extraordinary gift, her extravagant love for Jesus. And just like that smell eventually filled the house and again probably went out the doors, out the windows and filled the whole town, filled everywhere Jesus went for the next while, we wait and long for the day when the fragrance of Jesus' love, the glory of Jesus, fills the whole world. Let me pray. God, thank you again for this time and for this text. Thank you for the example of Mary. Thank you that we have, have been able to watch her through the chapters, especially the last two chapters, grow in, in faith and devotion as she started to grasp more and more of who Jesus was and is. I pray, Holy Spirit, again, that you would stir in our hearts, that you would help us to look at the ways we use our things do we give our best to you or do we give you the seconds or the leftovers? I pray even in this moment that, that we would get a, a new and, and growing sense and understanding of the love of Jesus. Just wash over us and wash over this place. And I pray that when we go in a couple of minutes that we would take the undeniable fragrance of Jesus' love out of these doors and, and into the world, wherever we're going today, into our neighborhoods, into the, the restaurant we go to for lunch, into our towns and cities, so that the glory of Jesus may spread everywhere. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.